Namaste and welcome to the Kurukshetra podcast. For our new listeners, my name is Rajiv Malhotra. I am the founder of Infinity Foundation, which has been around since the mid-1990s, to understand Indian culture, world culture, civilizations, history, religion, science, and a number of contemporary things. Prior to that, I was a computer scientist, a physicist, a corporate executive, a businessman, and I gave that up in my mid-40s to pursue this passion. I'm delighted that our host is Karishma, a well-known radio personality from Texas. She is going to curate many of our important messages and bring them to you on a regular basis. I invite you to subscribe to this channel and please share it with your friends. To be an intellectual Kshatriya and join our movement, we invite you to follow us at Rajiv Malhotra Official on Facebook, the same Rajiv Malhotra Official on YouTube, infinityfoundation.official at Instagram, Rajiv Message on Twitter. You can follow the Infinity Foundation Twitter account at Infinity Message. And on Google Groups, you can join Infinity Foundation Satsang Group. My personal website is www.rajivmalhotra.com. Listen to these talks, join the home team, get involved. Namaste. Hi there. Welcome to Infinity Foundation's Kurukshetra podcast. I'm your host, Karishma Hemat Singhani. In today's podcast, you will get to hear Sri Rajiv Malhotra talking at Columbia University, where he is delivering a talk on Hindu phobia in academia. So let's listen in. Welcome everyone. I am Sarthak Kalani, President of Hindu Yuva at Columbia University. And on behalf of Hindu Yuva, Seva International and Hindu Student Council, I would like to thank you all for coming to the event, Speaker on Campus, a talk on Hinduism in Academia by Rajiv Malhotraji. Mr. Rajiv Malhotra is an Indian-American researcher, writer, speaker, and public intellectual on current affairs as they relate to civilizations, cross-cultural encounters, religion, and science. Currently, he is the full-time founder director of Infinity Foundation in Princeton, New Jersey. He has authored hundreds of articles, and you can find his books outside. In today's event, we will have a talk by Rajiv Ji, followed by a few interview-style Q&A with one of our Columbia uh, Journalism students, Shalab, and then opening the stage for audience questions. I would now like to invite Rajiv Ji for the talk. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I want to uh, acknowledge, actually, uh, two important persons are sitting here in my publishing career, uh, Krishnan and Aditi. They are the uh, co-editors of the first book uh, in which I was involved. They were, they were the ones who put it together. And had it not been for them, it would probably not have happened. And then the rest of the books I did, you know, who knows what might have happened. So I'm very glad that they are both here. After a long time, I'm seeing both of them present. So I just want to acknowledge that. <clears throat> I also want to say that Columbia is where the first uh, academic grants given by Infinity Foundation happened. We were giving grants to schools and other kinds of things. But a decision was made that, you know, the place where it all starts, if you want to impact 
the discourse has to be universities and uh, a series of meetings with various people led to uh, me coming to Columbia University and the first uh, grant, which is fairly substantial, it was in the six figures, it was big for us at least uh, in those days, it's in the mid-90s, was given to the uh, religion department at Columbia University because I, I had this idea, I did not understand how the academy works, but I understood my tradition and how it's portrayed and what's not portrayed and what's over portrayed and so on. And I had been uh, involved in consciousness studies for many years. Uh, there's a Tucson conference regularly. There is a journal of consciousness studies. It's very serious su subject with neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, psychologists, philosophers. And in the early years of the consciousness studies movement in this country, most of the articles and speakers were talking about Vedanta, Hinduism, Buddhism kind of ideas. They were talking about non-duality, all sorts of things that were new to the Western world. They were part of uh, New Age since the 60s. And then it was being uh, sanitized and turned into an academic grade knowledge, uh, brought into a, a field called consciousness studies, which uh, didn't quite fit in any particular conventional department. So it was a multidisciplinary approach. That is where you studied the effects of yoga, uh, the effects of meditation, the whole mindfulness industry, the mindfulness revolution was starting, lucid dreaming, which is yoga nidra, all these kind of things were being discussed. Uh, and and uh, the idea of the divine feminine and what does it have to do with the masculine in terms of human physiology, the tantra, the chakras, all, all kinds of stuff were the topics over there. So it, uh, I discovered one of the first things I discovered is that none of that seems to be in the academic study of Hinduism. So it's more a question of what's left out. And I thought that, you know, this is something I would bring as news to them. But nobody wanted to, nobody in the academic world I talked to really felt that that was important, that was serious. Uh, you know, they were more interested in what I call the caste, cows and curry ideas of Hinduism. Anthropology, human rights, male dominated, Brahmin dominated, violence against Muslims, this sort of staple themes. So I started, uh, uh, I, I gave a grant here to uh, discuss the philosophical uh, dimensions. And when I look back at the uh, email, I, I was just looking to refresh my memory for this talk, to the whole old email thread. The philosophy department didn't show up for a six-figure grant because the, in their words, I think it was Akhil Bilgrami, who's, probably, who's still there, very prominent philosophy person. Uh, there is no such thing as Indian philosophy. Okay, there is, you know, there, there's religion. So this idea that Indians also have a philosophy was not something acceptable to the philosophy department. And most philosophy departments today would still say that, with some exceptions. And then the religion department's view also excluded these kind of topics I have in mind the topics I just mentioned, the, what I would consider the value of the tradition in today's world. So there was this uh, dichotomy. Why does the religion department not cover these aspects of Hinduism when they are covered in consciousness studies? They are all over the place. The yoga thing was booming in those days. There is animal rights. There is sacredness of the ecosystem. Vandana Shiva was being appropriated right and left on eco-feminism. You know, all of that was coming from Hinduism. And yet, the place where Hinduism is studied and taught didn't have much to say on that because it had its own different 
preferences, and you can't blame them. People have a right to choose what they study. So this is where my journey started, right here in Colombia. And, uh, and I developed a good relationship with Bob Thurman because I found the Buddhist depart Buddhism department was much more friendly, even towards Hinduism. So, so a whole lot of these Hindu ideas could be smuggled in through the Buddhism department. So we did another big grant a few years later with the Buddhist people in Colombia, the Tibet house. And we had a huge four-day conclave in uh, Woodstock, uh, which was a very big success. So that's how things got started. And I found that uh, uh, the influence on the religious studies was largely anthropology, uh, sociology. It's the sociology of religion, the politics of religion, human rights oppression. And later, some people introduced me to this idea, I think Christian was one of them, to the idea of atrocity literature as something very deep in white culture, atrocities of Native Americans, Mexicans, blacks, as sort of people who commit atrocities on their fellow human beings, and as a justification for intervening and invading them and civilizing them. And then that could be compared with the same kind of discussion going on in India about the civilizing mission. So the civilizing mission in India by the British and the atrocity literature and the conquest of the frontier in America were happening about the same time. And I could see those tropes being applied in the way in what, pe what people wanted to find interesting and exotic about, uh, about Hinduism. Now, I do not want to say everybody's like that. People often defend by saying, well, I'm different. I, I know a lot of people are different. But this is the part that caught my attention. It's not the only aspect of Hinduism certainly going on. So this. Uh, led to uh, my interest in understanding what goes on in the academic world. And I had a number of interventions. I've learned a lot. I made mistakes. I sometimes uh, criticized too much, or, and maybe too little, or maybe the wrong kind of view. So I, I started, uh, the first idea was that grant giving outside, from outside, arm's length, just here it is, uh, would encourage people to do certain kinds of things. Because Islam was doing that, Buddhism had a lot of uh, chairs, and those chairs, and Buddhism has been very favorable. The academic world has been very favorable to uh, Buddhism. Uh, so why not? Why not for us? So we did a couple of years. We did uh, visiting professors at Harvard. We did uh, five years in a row Indology conference at Harvard, where a lot of people were brought from various disciplines, uh, besides Columbia and and Princeton. We had University of California, Hawaii, all sorts of places. And it was about 10 years of this uh, that I realized that, you know, thinking out of the box is not going to happen in the box. And thinking, thinking that is paradigm changing is not going to come from there. And thinking that will upset, disrupt is not going to come from the old establishment. So you, it's almost like in uh, the rhetoric of uh, uh, Bernie Sanders on one side and Donald Trump on the other side that you've got to be outside the establishment to critique the establishment. I saw that sort of thing happening in the way the academic, academic study of Hinduism was taking place. So my uh, understanding of uh, Hinduism in, in America is this sort of a chronology. And I found that the Hindu community was not interested in what I had to say. This is very strange. Now, of course, it's the other way around. But I went to the uh, political people, the consulates and all that, the embassies. They said, we don't worry. You know, we're a secular country. We don't worry about all this. And they were a bit embarrassed that I was raising issues. 
then I went to the various Sangh related organizations in the US and they were saying we are doing very well. We got 800 temples and we got you know uh, so many Hindus and this much money going back to India. I mean they were looking at the wrong measures. They were not looking at what happened in the academy. Uh, so things changed when we started pointing out. We started uh, sponsoring people to, to study textbooks, school textbooks. And that caught people's attention. We started that in the mid-90s. We started going to conferences and started writing reports about what was wrong in the textbooks. Rather than higher education, it was textbooks because people had school kids. They were very worried. That is what got the whole thing going in terms of diaspora interest. So diaspora got interested in the kind of work. And meanwhile, a lot of I had been writing blogs and writing. Uh, there weren't blogs in those days, but a lot of emails and stuff like that, posting on internet. Had it not been for the internet, we would have been killed. Because there was every attempt to ignore, then badmouth us, then slander us, then call us all kinds of names. But you know, once this spark had been ignited, uh, it only helped me with the more we got attacked. Because that aroused people's curiosity. And so being attacked, became, uh, being non-ignorable became a strategy to say, say things that people won't ignore. Well, they may like it or they may not like it, but they should not ignore. And so ever since I've tried to come up with new insights into what is going on with Hinduism in America, uh, trying to provoke, trying to find gaps in knowledge or where there's major tilt that should be corrected. And I'm not always right, but I think to open a conversation which others who are better qualified than me can come is a good thing to do rather than waiting for the time when I may have a perfect answer, which I never will. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm more interested in being a, a conversation starter, define a problem area, define a battlefield, an intellectual battlefield, if you will, rather than somebody claiming to have solved the problems. And I, I, I'm very happy to, that I, I don't know how to solve many problems, but I can put the spotlight and say, here is an issue. And, and, and what the issue is, I can give you my views on it, enough to get uh, enough to ignite a conversation. So that's, that's how I, uh, I have approached this whole issue of uh, Hinduism in America. Now, um, I discovered somewhere along the way that um, <clears throat> when you profile white America, different kinds of people, different kinds of value systems. A friend of mine was in the business of uh, marketing demographics. And they, they look at... Uh, what are the psychographics, the lifestyle, values, interests of different categories. So in a conversation, this person tells me that the uh, profile of a white female, liberal, a liberal white female, typically they looked at what are the top characteristics. And the top characteristics are that she's likely to practice yoga, she goes for meditation classes, she's into causes like animal rights, maybe a vegetarian, believes in the feminine divinity, the cosmos being feminine and things like that. So I started wondering, why is it that a tradition like Hinduism is considered right-wing when the left-wing liberals have these Hindu ideas? It's a very interesting thing. So that led me on to a whole research which I call the U-turn theory, which says that a whole lot of people come and Westerners have come and studied Hinduism 
For a while they are Hindus, some of them get initiated and they wear Hindu clothes and you see their earlier stories, they were in a dhoti somewhere, in Rishikesh or something. Some of them stay there, but most of them move on and that's stage two. And they kind of uh, decouple it from Hinduism. They call it new age, they call it spiritual but not religious. That's a fashionable word today. Okay, which takes these ideas but removes the identity, brand, history, uh, ethnicity and try to appropriate it into sort of whiteness. And then some of them go to stage three where they re-Christianize it. So there's Christian yoga and there is uh, Christian Vedanta. A lot of books of that sort have been written. And these are not within the scope of religious studies. You don't have people criti critiquing these sort of topics too much. There may be some here and there. Uh, and then some go to stage four where they start accusing and blaming the source tradition for uh, its abusiveness, its oppression, which is there. There's no doubt about it. I mean, every tradition has its problems. I'm not, a defend I'm not trying to be an apologist saying everything is perfect. But this is a trajectory I found that there is appropriation, recharacterization, reformulation into a Western paradigm, which could be either Judaism or Christianity or science. Like consciousness studies is a U-turn into science. And Christian yoga is a U-turn into uh, Christianity. There's a lot of Judaic kind of stuff also. There's non-dual Judaism, this kind of thing going on. So I found that uh, this U-turn theory, and then the stage four is when they, there's a projection of negatives back on the source. It's almost like arson. You steal something and burn it down, burn down the place. Um, academic arson, you might say, or civilizational arson. And the same things happened with Native Americans. A lot of their stuff was taken, and then they were accused of all sorts of things. And then there is sometimes stage five where this new knowledge of consciousness studies or Christian yoga gets exported to India where it's very hot selling because now American. So I have a lot of things uh, uh, popular in India and when I tell them that the, this export, this import you got from the US, if you go further back, you will find that those guys got it from our tradition. There's several examples. So I'm also writing now a series of books on the U-turn theory to give many of these examples. So uh, these, are, these are some of the uh, points I uh, wanted to discuss so we can, we can uh, have a, a, a more of a uh, back and forth conversation. The study of Hinduism, if you look historically, the Western study of Hinduism seems to be in the, in the British era, there was the evangelical view. There's a huge archive in the Princeton Theological Seminary that once the librarian showed me. A lot of archive of Protestants and various people going to India and collecting all kinds of materials, writing back, sending back, you know, from the early 1800s. So there was this Christian view and then there was this capitalist view, Edmund Burke type of people, conservatives, capitalists, who were more interested in helping the East India Company make money or somehow the British people make more money. So they were not interested in converting people. A lot of uh, Indians mischaracterized that all Europeans are into the Christian evangelical angle. I think that's a blind side. It's not so. A lot of them are, but a lot of them have pure, you know, mercantile type of mentalities. The British East India Company was actually fighting evangelists from England, from Britain, keeping them out because that would upset the, uh, the ability to go and make a lot of money since they didn't want them to interfere. They didn't want evangelism to interfere with the, the commercial interests that they had. So. Uh, you cannot say that uh, uh, Indology during the European era was uh, entirely or even primarily for evangelical uh, purposes because it was not. So uh, 
that was one lens, the, the evangelical lens, and then the other one was the mercantile lens, and the two of them often interacted. And the evangelical lens was looking for things that comp would comprise a religion according to Christianity. So if you're looking for what is the religion of those people, you're looking for church, what is their holy book, who are the priests, you know, that sort of thing. What's the congregation? So you're looking for those things. But what if, uh, you know, so, so you have terms like house of worship. But what if somebody's uh, uh, puja is a, a tree or a, a river? I mean, there needn't be a house, per se. And there needn't be a congregation. You do something at home, you see. So the, the, some of that baggage has been removed because more uh, enterprising and better scholars have come in the West to challenge their own Orientalism from the past. But some of it continues. So this business of uh, uh, projecting a Judeo-Christian idea continues in different ways, not as blatantly, not as explicitly. Uh, we're not called heathens and infidels like we were in the 1800s, very clearly in a lot of literature. But there are subtle uh, uh, ways that what I call Western universalism creeps in. Western universalism is this idea that the experience of the West, its history, its philosophy, its perspective is sort of the universal. And you see it in invisible ways, in many forms. For instance, uh, many universities have uh, ethnomusicology. But you know, why isn't Mozart part of ethnomusicology? Why is this normal music and then ethnic music? Who gets to be the normal? I mean, if the Chinese were ruling the world, would they say that the Mandarin-based music is the music, and then Mozart is ethnomusicology? From their point of view, maybe so. And what constitutes ethnicity? It's non-whiteness or difference from white. What is ethnic food? I mean, why isn't English meat and potatoes ethnic just as much as, you know, uh, aloo paratha or something? So the idea of uh, whiteness as a kind of an invisible universalism is there. And it's there not only in pop culture, it's there in philosophy, it's there in uh, what constitutes scholarship, who has authority or adhikar. The academy runs on a system of adhikar, a system of certification, which is not as per the Indian tradition. Now that's another thing I had to educate the Hindu diaspora, that when a Swami comes, he's welcome for an evening talk. That's sort of extracurricular. But he's not in the curriculum, he's not, we wouldn't be qualified in the curriculum <laughs> Uh, to be a professor, even though he may be credentialed at the highest level in his own tradition, but if he doesn't have the certification as per the Western criteria, he's not qualified. Now that's a very strange thing, because the Western idea of, uh, of being credentialed is non-experiential, so in our, in, it's text-based, because the Bible, there are text-oriented, book-based uh, book uh, religions. In our case, the highest yogi would not be considered to have adhikar to be a pro proper teacher because he didn't have the credentials, he didn't read texts necessarily. But for, our, for us, a bhakt or a, a yogi uh, or, or somebody with a, a huge meditative experiences would be, would be a highly qualified person. So even what is credentialed, who can have a faculty position, who gets to be on the editorial board, I mean, there are, the criteria are based on or influenced by Western universalism. I would grant you that this is not 100% of the time. And somebody will raise a hand and say, well, that's not, you cannot essentialize. I'm not trying to essentialize. I'm trying to make a point, and sometimes you make a point by isolating and focusing on something, not because it's the only thing that's going on, but because that's something interesting to bring your attention to. So um, 
I've had this combat with Western universalism for, uh, for a very long time. And um, now this, uh, this critique is not limited to Westerners. Indians have imported a huge amount of these problems, particularly those with Western education. And I had a Western education, so I can relate to that. And every time I go to India, which is you know three, four times a year, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of gatherings with my old friends from school and college. They're all very westernized, and they all got big posts in various places. And they think I'm a weird kind of odd person because they, they've become alienated. They, most Indians in elite positions are alienated. Uh, Delhi culture particularly. People in industry, government, Indian administrative services, Indian foreign services. I gave a talk on our identity, history, and all that to the graduating class of the Indian Foreign Service. They are the ones who become diplomats. There were 30 of them. And I was very surprised at their, their attitude towards our own heritage. It's highly secularized, I would say, uh, almost ashamed of the past. So how did all this happen? Who did this? This all happened probably after independence. So maybe we were closer to our roots during the British time. And maybe after we got independence, there was a craving to become like the British. So we stepped into the British uh, clubs and the British lifestyle to become the new Saabs, because that was our idea of uh, superiority. And then we tried, decided to outdo them. Yeah. So this is, this is, these are problems that I, I uh, come across. So the, um, if this has become worse, now a fierce, fierce is the term, Indian left exists with a determined project all the time to bring down anything like uh, anything like I'm talking about as chauvinistic and nationalistic and you know the point is all I'd like to see is the same space the same respect as other traditions get I mean I I don't see so when I coined the term Hindu phobia 20 years ago I coined the term Hindu phobia because the term Islamophobia was very popular and there, was, there would be an award given to some book on Islamophobia. There would be conferences. There are academic, uh, you know, the, the, the term Islamophobia is very well known. And it's not considered Islam chauvinism when you talk about Islamophobia. In fact, it's considered cool that you talk about Islamophobia. But when I searched on Google, there was no hit on Hinduphobia. So I said, I'm going to start using that term. And I did. And now I think it's got some currency. We should be able to talk about Hindu phobia, and it should not be considered you're an activist, you're a politician, you are in league with this or that political group, and you're saffron. I mean, come on. Why isn't Hindu phobia a fair topic of academic research? Why aren't there academic books trying to investigate Hindu phobia, not looking down and making fun of these uh, the, uh, people who are trying to do whatever they can to expose? But trying to look at it honestly, that there is Hinduphobia. I mean, there are temples that are not getting permission sometimes from a political point of view. There are so many cases of bias in schools. This has been documented in the last 20 years. We could write many volumes. So it's larger than life. It's the elephant in the room. And the academics are still not uh, paying attention to it, still not acknowledging that such a thing even, even exists. So uh, I will, uh, I'll just make a few remarks. And then we, I think, have more time for questions, that will be probably more interesting. Uh, now, the, uh, I mentioned earlier that during the British era, 
there was the lens of evangelism, and then there was the lens of the capitalists, you know, conservatives and people like that. What didn't exist, at least not hugely, which is now a dominant lens, is Marxism. Even though Marx came in the 1800s, late, the empire didn't sponsor a whole lot of Indology using Marxism, presumably because it didn't suit them. They wouldn't want an upheaval. They wouldn't want, while they're in control, to have a revolution of you know, the public, the masses. And also, in any case, not until Lenin took the idea into, the, into practice in Russia and then other uh, communist revolutions started in the 1900s, the idea had been just a theoretical one anyway. So for whatever reason, I'm not a historian on Marxism, for whatever reason, uh, the, the Indology with all these variations and different kinds of Orientalists was not sort of a Marxist enterprise, but it has become that. It has become, uh, this is another very big thing that's happened. That the, uh, while the uh, zealous uh, pursuit of Indology and Hinduism by the seminaries continues, the Christian seminaries continues, uh, the, uh, the Western uh, pursuit from a capitalist East India Company lens has not been there as much. Maybe now it's coming up because, of, because now there's a capitalist interest in India. Uh, you know, so that uh, lens of capitalism may come back. But uh, the lens accompanying the evangelical lens has been the Marxist one. And so it's Marxism which has imported a whole lot of theories, uh, a whole lot of Western ideas, and uh, kind of Put, applied them to study Indian society. So they're looking for what will fit. Like the evangelists were saying, okay, what is the house of worship? What qualifies, what's the equivalent of a priest? What's the sacred book? You know, what's the canon? What's the congregation? They were looking for five or six standard building blocks that comprise a religion. They were looking for those things and they characterized it that way. Uh, so now it's the Marxists looking for things that will fit. Uh, and and that's, that's why I think where the battlefield is. The battlefield of... Uh, people who want to give Hinduism its space in its own voice is not entirely with evangelists. Unfortunately, Hindus are blind to the fact, uh, to this. They feel that it is all about evangelism. The bigger fight is with Marxist, leftist. Uh, and the way to tackle it is not to sort of say we are right-wing, because I don't think we are right-wing. I just give you examples of the liberal white women who are practicing Hinduism but not calling it that. So you cannot say we are right-wing. Uh, Hinduism is, you cannot really characterize it left or right, and I just don't like the, the pigeonhole nature of it. And quite frankly, the people who are Marxists have a lot of sense too. They are saying a lot of wise things. There is, there is, there is a lot of egalitarianism in, in our culture. There is a lot of, uh, there have been movements, Bhakti movement and many others, that champion the rights of uh, poor people. There has been this, uh, uh, this ability from within without importing anything, without uh, some sanctions and human rights violations uh, being imposed on you and Ford Foundation funding these things. Without this kind of a foreign intervention, there has been, a there has been the ability within the Indian culture to self-correct. So we have problems, but we also come up with solutions. We shouldn't deny that we have problems, but we can also be more creative in coming up with a solution. So uh, I'll stop with that. This is, this is a big field. We can go on for a long time. And I thank you for listening, and, may, and afterwards we'll have some Q&A, I hope. Thank you so much.
thank you rajiv ji for the talk uh, one comment i can make one i forgot sure one thing i'm disappointed by is that the um, the study of hindu phobia in general that's one has not entered the academy as a legitimate academic pursuit it if it's discussed at all it is talked in the it's in the sense of dismissing those right wing guys and they're making trouble the bad guys you know i don't understand that because uh, a similar claim of the insiders uh, from the side of african americans is highly respected academic topic uh, from the side of gays it's, a, it's it's an insider perspective from the side of women it's been an insider perspective you can go on there's a lot of other identities where the insider perspective is a highly respected pursuit of academic study but i don't see with the same vigor the hindu phobia topic as being a theme for conferences and uh, phd's and so on and the second theme i find missing is what i call digestion which is these u turns that are taken which result in a lot of uh, hindu and buddhist ideas becoming digested into judeo christianity and or western science in some way but i don't find that i mean when i go and discuss it it's always a fight people deny it then when i give example they say okay so what who owns culture i mean you have to really pull it out of them you have to really pull it. the history of ideas the history of ideas and the 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 indian origin of many ideas that have become supposedly universal or western is not a topic of study so i uh, i'm more interested in starting uh, areas which others like you can join and enter Uh, and once i feel that uh, an area has captured enough people's attention then it i'm usually uh, obsolete from there i got to move on and do something else so uh, that's all i'm trying to do is create interest in more inquiry and and you would think that the liberal academy would be uh, because they like more knowledge they like more perspective they say more diversity more pluralism you would think that somebody who's provoking even criticizing them would be welcome would be welcome you know but that is not the case it is a very close kind of a, criticism is great from amongst themselves those who are certified licensed part of the peer cartel they are they they criticize each other within certain parameters within certain paradoxes pa- paradigms but if you are not one of them you are truly somebody else and you want to take shots at what they are doing and you want to claim that this is my tradition too uh, it's it's considered to be like the rude native informant talking back you the native informant you know you are the native informant you'll answer my questions i'll take your data i'll publish it you know your place and this is the native informant who's very defiant and we got to teach him a lesson so that's the kind of uh, thing that i have faced and i i relish when they uh, uh, you know when people say that i have no problem i am quite thick skinned now uh, and so uh, every time i do a book i try to open a new kind of t- uh, new area of conversation get it out of the closet and let it take it life its own thank you Next, I would like to invite Shalav Upadhyay, who is um, a student in Columbia Journalism School, and to have a uh, interview-based Q and A with Shalav. So, so this will include all the Q and A which uh, we got from uh, audience from uh, when they were RSVP. So I'm going to be the moderator from here now. Uh, I have to have notes. I'm unlike uh, Rajiv Ji. I don't have the. Uh, 
know how to just. No, I was cheating. I was also looking at this. Okay, number. were you? Okay. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I've had, I've had, I've had to do uh, much more of a work uh, to have uh, to be here and talk to you. So, just a little bit about myself. I grew up in India. And, uh, uh, I came to Toronto uh, for my undergrad. I spent the last uh, eight years there. Now. Where in India? On New Delhi. Oh, good. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, exactly the kind of people you're talking about. All right. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I came to Toronto when I was uh, right out of high school, did my undergrad there, worked at a company, and now I'm at Columbia Journalism School. Now, interestingly enough, you were talking about Hindu-phobia. Uh, I was reading uh, last year around uh, February, I think there was uh, in uh, Madison, Alabama, there was an elderly Indian gentleman named uh, Suresh, Bhai, uh, uh, Suresh Bhai Patel, I think. And uh, he had an altercation with a cop, and uh, he was thrown onto the ground, uh, which led to uh, partial paralysis. The, uh, the cop uh, ended up, uh, there was a case, court case, and in January he was acquitted. Now at that time the Indian community talked about maybe this was an attack not just on a random civilian, but maybe it was something directed at because he was brown, whatever you want to call it. Around the same time we had a lot of uh, attacks in the temples in uh, western uh, Washington state. And those were characterized as, uh, as uh, vandalism rather than uh, hate crime. Now, when you have such situations, why do you think that there hasn't been a decent enough argument made for Hindu phobia? Okay, that's a very good question. I think the problem lies with us. The problem lies, and I also, while I study the Westerners uh, and what the issues are and try to classify them and, you know, into various categories, I'm, I haven't published my categorization of Hindus, because I guess when I do that, they'll stop reading my books any further. So I'm, I'm keeping that last, maybe, or post posthumously or something. I mean, I have a lot, of hard, a lot of tough things to say about our leaders, about our mentality, about the slavish mentality. Uh, I think it's, and you know, you can go back and say, did it happen during the British? Did it happen during the Mughals? When did we lose all this uh, Kshatriyata leadership? Uh, but at least as of now, I can tell you, we would rather be non-confrontational, take the easy way out, cop out, not rattle too much, not rock the boat. People who came here are looking for material success, and they, they are so lucky to come here and make some lot of money and get a big house and big, all, all the great stuff. They don't want to risk that. Uh, they, then it's about children. They want to settle their children. Then it's about uh, self-esteem and glory, so they'd rather give $20 million grant somewhere and get their name on a building, because now they're entering the upscale, you know, they're going to get a seat at the white man's table and they'll be considered big shot, you know. So there is that sort of a mentality of success. That's the uh, role model of success. The political groups that should be representing Hinduism, based in India that are well-known groups, have lacked adequate strategic thinking and scholarship. They are more into uh, maybe a bombastic speech, rabble-rousing, maybe uh, vote-gathering and things like that, but they haven't invested in a think tank. They haven't really invested in quality research. The kind of thing that I, I have been doing, I, I was expecting that lots of people will join in. I quit my job, profession, career, financially, everything left to do this full-time. And I thought that this is something a lot of people would want to do. But they all say, good, Rajiv, you are doing a very good job, and you know, one day I will also join you, that sort of thing. But that one day never happens. So we do not have enough tapasya, enough sacrifice from our community. Uh, then the, the other segment would be the clergy, the religious people, maybe the swamis, the acharyas, you would think that they would be doing it. Now, m many of them 
privately, the ones in India privately support me a lot and publicly more and more of them are beginning to support me. Uh, in this country, they're very careful also. For some, I don't know why, what they're scared of because the laws protecting religion are very strong. And you know, the irony is that in this country, it's fine to be an Irish American, an Italian American, a black American, a Hispanic American, and we can be Indian American, but you know, like the Jews have Jewish American identity is very clear. Islamic American identity is very clear. The Christian uh, identity is very clear. There's no reason why we have to hide under the South Asian more kind of non-threatening identity, okay? When you go to these South Asian groups, you know, you, sometimes you go to these South Asian groups and 90% or sometimes even 100% are, are Hindus. I mean, we, we started a Hindu-Jewish coalition in New Jersey hmm. where the Jewish people approached some Hindus and said, would you like to join? And we said, fine. Now, the interesting thing is, for them, the Jewish term was very clear. For us, we, we said, okay, Hindu term is fine. So my co-founder and I, we said, okay, yes, it should be Hindu-Jewish. But as we started taking it out to our community, more and more of them said, you know, does it have to be Hindu? Why can't we call it South Asian? <laughs> and it's sort of like almost like a fear, a kind of an inferiority complex. So I think there's in some inferiority complex, there's some lack of academic or of good scholarship and study of the whole thing. We don't have enough of our people participating in these events and having these encounters. Uh, when they want to get involved, it's like arm's length, I'll write you a check of $5 million, put my name somewhere, I don't want to know too much. You know, I, have, I, have, I find a lot of that, which is more to get prestige, maybe get their kid into Harvard or whatever, you know, uh, get into a board and then it's good for business. So the, the reasons for engagement and, and uh, getting in, in, into, the, uh, into the active uh, life are not quite, uh, you know, pure. Or necessary, and they're not quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm really doing this for a cause kind of thing. And the people who are uh, in charge of these Hindu organizations are often looking for personal positions up. They'll be moved into a regional office or they'll become some national head somewhere. A few of them are really sticking their neck out. But I'm seeing, in the last 10 years, I'm seeing a huge change. I think uh, people are more and more willing to stand up and say, we're going to fight Hindu phobia. People are, uh, the, some of the Indian press begin to say that, the new media, newspapers and TV in this country are beginning to say that. Certainly the civic society, the parents fighting school prejudices are beginning to say that. So I, I, I see a change coming and with more money comes more confidence. Mm. And people say, well, you know, if I'm good enough to be the top doctor here or the top this or that, then how are they to uh, insult my tradition? So that is coming. Let me let me let me push you back push back a little bit on that. So we we talked about the Indian community, right? What about the rest of the community not not looking this at uh, looking at this these issues as Hindu phobia? So you talked about how most people within the Hindu community are docile, dormant in a way. Why would anybody want to be against such kind of people, right? I mean, anti-Christianity is because there were, uh, Christianity had a huge expansion movement. Um, Islam, to a certain degree, in the last 500 years, went through an expansion phase. Anti-Semitism is actually rooted in historical consequences. But India, last time India or Hinduism was expand, expanding, was over a millennium ago. So, does is there something? Is this something that we're trying to come up with, or does it actually exist? Are people looking at people and say, "Well, this is a Hindu. Maybe I don't like that person." Is that is that you think? Well, exists if you look at the experience of temples, some of the temples have had to fight a lot to get permission. Obviously, it is because they're Hindu temple. I mean, there was this uh, Chinmay mission in East Windsor, near where I live. Uh, it, they bought a church building, 
long ago. So it's zoned as a house of worship. The moment it is now owned by Hindus, the zoning is changed because of traffic problems and noise problems. The local ordinance is changed so that they can't build or make a temple there. So that's obviously prejudice on religion. They had to fight and get it overturned. So people are using more clout to overcome this, but that resistance is there. So you know the, the deep, the deep uh, culture of this country, the Christian uh, culture of this country is Christian. They, I mean, that's very true. There is a xenophobia. There's a, different, there's a concern about those who are different, and religion is one of the factors for being different. One of the reasons the Chinese who came as migrants converted in large numbers, large scale to Christianity, is to reduce that difference. So Chinese became Christians in this country because they thought that now we'll be accepted. It didn't quite work out. So there's multiple markers of difference. There's race, there's language, you know, there's religion. So it's not only Hindu phobia, but Hindu phobia is a, a significant component of it. You see how Hinduism is represented in the school text, that tells you a lot. And I think there's concerns about, you know, uh, these uh, strange gods and goddesses, very concerned. And then these gurus are sort of, you know, suspicious people because they claim all these special powers they have. And then uh, in the 60s, in the 60s, there was an age of innocence. In the 60s and 70s, you saw gurus being like, like big, huge, big shots in this country. They should have converted them to Hindu. But at that time, when there were tens of millions of white Americans going into Hinduism, these, you know, the New Age movement was very big. It's the, it's the gurus who sort of didn't go all out and convert them. Buddhists did. So people would become a Buddhist. There's a formal process. You become a Buddhist. So Buddhists are, there are a lot of white Buddhists who are officially Buddhists. They're not just saying, I practice this, it's all the same, but don't call me anything. Secretly, I'll tell you, you know. They're not, in, they're not worried about that. But the Hindus, it's the gurus who did not have that confidence to say, okay, I'm going to make you into Hindu. Except people like Iskand Prabhupada was very clear that, okay, you're not anything, but you are this, you're a Vaishnav. So this, uh, uh, this uh, strat strategic thinking wasn't there. We missed a huge window of opportunity. And then this new age, partly these things got digested into spiritual but not religious, Christian yoga, consciousness studies. You know, it got digested into Western paradigms because the people who had learned these things from Hinduism felt that they could have a bigger market to uh, sell it to the Westerners that this is our own tradition. And this came from Jesus Christ. There's more market for that, you know, if you can do that. So the U-turn and digestion is fed by opportunity, entrepreneurs who, who do that. So part of the problem was that from after the 60s and 70s, a huge amount of what I would call the positive assets got siphoned off, and they're no longer considered part of Hinduism per se. And you have to fight and say, okay, if you're going to teach a course on Hinduism, I want yoga. I want all these five or ten things that the Americans are enjoying, which come from Hinduism. I want them part of the course. You have to fight for it. It's not automatically done. And then meanwhile, this whole human rights thing in India, this whole Dalit activism, this whole, hum this whole fragmentation, which I write in my book, Breaking India, mm -hmm. the, the Breaking India forces, very, very strong, becoming stronger, vote banks fragmenting the Indian politics, yeah. Uh, they also started getting support from the academic world, feeding them th this kind of scholarship. So the, the, uh, the rise of Hindu phobia and the rise of digestion go hand in hand, because one sucks out the positive nutrients and the other hits you with the negatives. So it's a double whammy. Well, also uh, going back to uh, India, um, you're one of the 
not so popular people in the Indian media, at least, or whatever I've read. I'm not sure why that is, but India has one of the uh, one of the largest youth populations in the world right now. I think um, uh, over 300 million uh, Indians are between the age of 10 to 24. Uh, I have a huge problem with what I would call mainstream media. Okay. But quite the opposite in social media. Well, yeah, India only has one media, mainstream media. No, no, India has oh, a big social, social media. media. Social media. Yeah. Social media is big. Yeah. And when you, most of my audiences when I go mm-hmm. are young people. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're young, they're, they're young, these people in colleges and, you know, ashrams, and they're well-educated type young people. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're attracted is because they're not the ones sit, sitting and reading newspapers. They are looking at, they're tweeting, they're on Facebook. And so the type of discussion that goes on in social media is quite different from the mainstream media. And the social media people are in fact uh, 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 hitting out at the mainstream media. And this is a clash between social media and mainstream media also. That's a very serious clash in India. So I would ask, because specifically in India, and I'm going to talk about mainstream media, uh, journalism is seen as a Western concept. It's... Uh, it started off, uh, and it's, it's something that has gone to the rest of the world. Now, does Hinduism within itself present an alternative to Western journalism? Is there I'm, something? No, I'm not aware. I mean, the 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 big era of Hinduism was before these technologies existed, mm-hmm. before the technology, because the journalism is based on the technology of printing and electronics and things like that. So naturally, where these, since these technologies came from here, the models on how you do this stuff, the formats also came from here. Mm-hmm. So you have to say that these are mainly Western kind of ideas. But what uh, Hinduism needs is the Hindu version, Hindu equivalent of Al Jazeera. That's what Hinduism needs. And uh, Fox TV. You see, in, in, in the United States, uh, people will hate Fox and they will hate the Christian right, the liberals will, but the point is they get a seat at the table. You definitely invite one of those guys. You don't sort of say, you don't dismiss them in such a way that they are not entitled to because they're evil people. You don't do that. They have a seat at the table. If there's a president, no matter what party he's from, and there's a press meeting, those guys are there. They will also be asking questions. So Fox despite its extreme right wing, has a kind of a, some, some status uh, of legitimacy for its people and very large audiences. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So you have MSNBC on the left, you have Fox on the other side, you have CNN dancing around. Uh, you have uh, these uh, media alternatives. Al Jazeera is very, ma- becoming very mainstream. There is nothing like that that Hindus, ha- Hindus have produced. You have some channels for one guru. But that's not, they're not uh, broad channels. They're just one guru particular channels. Hmm. That's not enough. And why do you think that is? I think it's lack of vision. I mean, it's lack of vision. And this is the sort of thing that the big Hindu political leaders and big Hindu, the people who speak for Hinduism as big, huge, you know, I'm just an entrepreneur. I'm just one man. But the people who got big armies and huge funding, they ought to have by now created an Al Jazeera. There is absolutely no reason not to do that. And get very professional people pay them good salaries, get you know, people with good experience from good colleges, and create that kind of media. There's, there's no reason not to. And I would think that it would actually be a commercial success. Mm-hmm. My feeling is that like Fox makes a lot of money. Al Jazeera is huge. They get a lot of advertising because there's circulation, there's readership, viewership. So I think the same would happen for Hinduism, that if they were well-produced, not sort of in the face, you know, saffron, dogmatic, not that much, but teaching, but uh, presenting news, presenting everything from documentaries to uh, cricket matches to whatever is going on and giving the aura of balance. 
This is the subtlety nuance that Hindus need to develop, rather than too much uh, one-sided in the face. Okay. Now, I know you like question and answer, so I think we're just going to go to the audience Q&A. Hi. Thank you so much for your presentation. My name is Sanjana Shukla. I am a student at New York University. Um, what do you study? I study education studies. Oh, good. Yes, largely because I'm very interested in the way that uh, Western academia presents sort of lacks an imagination in the ways that you were speaking about today. Um, so I've written down my question. Um, can you speak a little bit to how Hindu phobia plays out in Indian academia? And do you see the same caste cow curry trope play out in classrooms in India? Well, I think uh, in India, it's a very interesting uh, segmentation. Uh, the humanities in India have very little originality, mostly Western models have been borrowed, social sciences uh, and humanities, they're teaching India through the Western models, much of it. So the same Hindu phobia is there, you're learning all these kind of things in the same way. However, I find the tech people, the uh, IITs and Indian Institute of Science and the medical people and people in business and those sort of people have been spared the brainwashing. The less education in a sense is better because they haven't been biased in that way. And their idea of Hinduism is what they learned in home and what they learned from a guru. And so it's the practitioner's view. Hello, Hindu. A practitioner's view. Uh, it's the practitioner's view. So uh, it's not something that they've been taught in the classroom so much. So the Hindu phobia exists in the classroom in India, for sure. And you will see that you go to a history department, it's very difficult to, uh, to talk to students after the first couple of years. They're just completely into that. And they memorized. Uh, you know, and the, the uh, main, uh, the titans of Indian uh, academia, uh, the Irfan Habib and uh, Ramila Thapar and all that, they're all uh, highly westernized, highly left-wing, anti-Hindu kind of views they have. Now, there was a period after independence, period of R.C. Majumdar. Uh, he, was the, he was a big historian. He wrote multiple volumes of History of India in the early Nehru era. And that was very much to counter the British biases. So it was very favorable to India, its civilization and all that stuff that he wrote. And that was the staple for uh, over a decade. When Indira Gandhi came, there was a shift in the academics because when she needed coalition partners, she was not getting enough majority, and she needed coalition partners to, be, to make a government, she reached out to the left, she reached out to communist parties to join her and the communist parties were very honest, they didn't want ministries to make money. Like today, the coalition partners want to have a railway minister or an airline minister because they can make bribes. Uh, you know, if you, get, if you get your man in, the, in one of the cabinets, then you can make, he can make a lot of money. So the left in those days didn't want that. They were pretty honest as far as money is concerned. What they bargained with Indira Gandhi in exchange for support is intellectual positions. They wanted vice chancellors to be theirs. They wanted, in the academic world, they wanted their left Marxist scholars to be appointed. So that was what led to the rise of this whole Ramila Thapar and a whole lot of other people that followed, which has been there for quite a while. So that's kind of a, an oversimplified view of the Indian Academy and its uh, origins of Hindu phobia. And I would say that the Hindu phobia was not as much during the British time. Maybe the British were scared. So it was not as serious in the face. And also, another reason for the rise of Hindu phobia is that the politics of getting, making a government have favored fragmentation. If you can go to a jati, a particular community, 
uh, of any kind of identity and tell them that you guys are exploited, the other people are exploiting you, I'm your champion, you have a chance of uh, getting elected. So uh, democracy has also created fragmentation and vote banks, and that feeds into this problem. Okay, so my name is Aditya, and I, uh, my question to you is, uh, a lot of criticism of Hinduism is based on basically caste discrimination. Yes. yes. And Hinduism is a philosophy a way of life which is uh, not dogmatic. It, can, it is not something which is static. It can evolve. So do you think, uh, and a lot of uh, is used by the Christian evangelicals and by the Muslims to convert Dalits. Do you imagine a future where there's no caste or do you feel that caste has some positive effect or like, uh, how do you see the future of caste? So you see, at one time we had Varna. And there was fluidity, it was not meant to be in a hierarchy, because you know, in some ways, Brahmins had less rights than others do. So there are more restrictions on what Brahmins cannot do. So I'm not a Brahmin, but if you look at uh, the various codifications, uh, it's not that there is a hierarchy of rights, because for maybe rituals, somebody had more rights, but for accumulating money, somebody else had more rights. For political power, somebody else had more rights. So it was a rights distribution mechanism, which, had, which played its role. A corrupted version of that is the caste system, which becomes hierarchy and rigid, and then it becomes do uh, more dogmatic because the, constitu the constitution and politics and all of that uh, uh, gives caste privileges. So when the privileges are given by caste, then you are setting it up for tension because it's a matter of fighting who gets more privilege, who is more abused. So you set it up, you set the ball in motion for more fra fragmentation and more conflicts, and therefore it no longer serves the purpose. Yeah, it may be difficult to go back to the fluid uh, version. So moving forward, my, my recommendation is that uh, privileges for those who need special help, uh, uh, affirmative action, should be based on individual need. So like uh, you know, an individual who is poor, handicapped, have whatever problems they have, there should be a scoring method. A person who has uh, more challenges, needs more help, that should be given more help, regardless of the cost. So a Brahmin may be more uh, in need of help or a Dalit or whoever. And there are Dalit billionaires. There, there are Dalit billionaires. So there's no reason that the Dalit billionaire ought to be given privileges just because he, he's a Dalit. So if you remove the privileges, the economic, political privileges uh, from the caste group to individual, individual merit, individual need, I think then within a generation or so you can uh, avoid this problem. And the other thing you can do is have universal education because studies are showing that when you take a graduating class of educated people, the, 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 where they end up in jobs is not caste biased. It, the people, like you, Tata's have done a study, a lot of these kind of corporate people have done a study, and they don't see that among their rank and file employees, there is some kind of a hierarchy based on caste. So education helps, and decoupling the, caste, the privileges from caste and bringing it more on a personal, individual level, I think are the two remedies. Hi, my name is Nick. I study here at Columbia, and I'm a practicing Hindu. Um, my question is about this whole uh, Western universalism thing. Um, I, I actually, I, I tend to see this a lot in Hindus. I'm not sure how much it applies to you, because I haven't read all your work, but I think it does actually apply to you to some degree, um, where Hindus will tend to um, portray the aspects of their belief, which they... Uh, you know, which they believe will, play, will conform to um, 
to a, a Western universalizing sort of thing. And by that, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Christianity you know, emphasizes brotherhood and peace, supposedly, anyway. And uh, so then we go, okay, we got that too, ahimsa. And then we go with that. And then what happens to Kshatriya Dharma? What happens to Dharmyud? What happens to theories of just war? Where's all this going? Um, another big one is egalitarianism. I mean, you even said it today in your talk. You, met, you, you threw the word out, egalitarianism. We have this in our tradition too, in bhakti. And it's true, we do have it in, in, in many forms of bhakti, have a form of egalitarianism, but we also have forms of hierarchy. I think what I said is that we have problems, but there are also revolutions and, and uh, upheavals from within, like bhakti. Sure. Can yeah. Ask the question. Please? Yeah. Sure. The question is. But you are, you are where you're going. I think what you're saying, I'll, I'll, I agree with in large part. But tell me your question. Why does our form of Hinduism have to be left friendly? I mean, you eschewed the word right, but forget about right. Say reactionary or conservative. Yeah. I don't no, my my, my form of Hinduism in, in, a, in a derogatory way. Yeah. No. But let me answer the question. Are, but but being reactionary and being conservative is how you actually combat. Okay. A universalizing tendency. Okay, so let me answer. So I, so I, I would, yeah, yeah, good. I, I agree with that. So my idea of Hinduism is it's left and it's right, and it's it's both and it's neither. Because there is, would you consider Gandhi to be a left wing or a right wing? I don't think you could classify it that way. I don't think you could classify it that way. I don't think that uh, you would take, uh, you know, Sri Ramakrishna. Uh, was he a left wing or a right wing? I think these categories don't make sense. So I use the word left. In, de in describing those who call themselves left. Please listen carefully. I do not brand a person left if he doesn't want to be. I let them decide for themselves. There is a large number of people who prefer to be called leftists, and I call them leftists. All I'm saying is that right, right wing is a wrong uh, way to characterize me. I don't want to be called that or a left wing. I just don't like that those categories. Because those categories in the French Revolution and who sat on the left side and the right side and uh, who could not bear the other. And we don't have that history. So we, I, don't, I just don't feel that if, if the category of left, right, nor do I accept the category of tradition, modernity and postmodernity because I think we, don't, we cannot be defined in that way. We've had bits of all of that simultaneously present. So I, I am, uh, when, I've, when I critique Western universalism, I critique those kind of categories. I acknowledge that a lot of those things have creeped into our minds. We are colonized. All of us are colonized. I'm still colonized. But I'm conscious of it and trying my best to get rid of it when I can. But I believe I'm colonized. Okay? I'm, I'm less colonized than I was 20 years ago. And so basically, I'm sharing with people my experiences of how to decolonize. So my name is Mayank, and I'm another black sheep like Shalab from Delhi. Uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, so I would like to extrapolate a little bit on Nick's question. I am happy that you you said that Hinduism is a lot about you know liberal uh, type of policies. When we say politics is social policies versus economic policies, and there's a mix of uh, both in politics. So. Um, and then definitely you called it more liberal, and I'm happy about it, and I'm glad that you didn't call it left. It would be a shame. Uh, but, I'm glad you uh, picked up the difference. <laughs> the previous guy didn't. Yeah. And, uh, and um, my, my question is that why, um, like you talked about Kshatriyata, why is it not the right time to align ourselves economically and say, okay, Hinduism is more, um, it celebrates entrepreneurship, it celebrates making your money. Yes. Um, so why shouldn't we just go out and say, okay, we are maybe BJP, I don't know much about it, 
but to consider ourselves as mainstream, isn't it the right time to say, okay, we are it. We are probably, you know, uh, backing one candidate other than the other, um, you know, um, not the other, as it happened in Canada, like uh, Sikhs. So, so who's your American candidate? I guess you are trying to pitch for somebody. No. No? Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm new to this country, and okay. I don't really understand okay. a lot of politics right. in India and here. But then why don't we say that we are, we are what we are? I think that's our, what we're trying to do. And, and it may not be that all of us are in one political camp. We don't have to be. Or one economic camp. Hindus have a right to be diverse, like Christians are all over the place. I mean, you have the uh, one end of the spectrum. You have, uh, you know, uh, Obama type people, or, or you know, on the left, you would say people like uh, Carter, and then you have Christians on the other side. So we have a right to take our own uh, postures and our own policies on economic, social policy, and yet be a perfectly fine Hindu. I mean, I can I can be a compliant Hindu without having to join one particular party or not the other. I, I and just because somebody asked the question, I'm not a member of any party. I, I, I have not been a member of a party. I don't intend to be. This way I can keep my options open. I can endorse the, a certain set of policies of a certain candidate line item. That I can. And then I can disagree with the same person on other issues. So that's the way I choose to be. And I think this is a, this is a quality that a lot of Hindus have, a kind of an intellectual freedom, which is what you're saying. And we can all be the way we want to be. I fully agree with you. I would like to talk about Hindu phobia within the context of uh, the violence that is happening in India against Muslims and Dalits and Dalit Bahujans and the drab dismissal of Dalit Bahujan movements that have been in your talk and your writings. And I would like to talk about Hindu phobia within the context of Narendra Modi, who is currently the Prime Minister, who is responsible for the massacre of thousands and thousands of Muslims. Wow. Wait, uh, I, I didn't understand down with the what? What was she saying? Huh? Oh, hin down, down with the Hindutva. Okay, I, I wish she had said it once clearly. I couldn't understand what. I thought she said down with Fatwa. For a, okay. for a, for a, for a, okay guys, can we, can we have some, this isn't JNU. No, but this is. I just want to say, I want to make that clear. Uh, this right. is good entertainment. I, I know, I know, but I mean, like I said, you, you need to get some entertainment genuine. also. Huh? This is good entertainment. Actually, we should bring, give him back. Uh, let's have, get some more going. It's good. I, I think it's good stuff. Yeah, I think. Uh, uh, but why is Jack Holly run away? He's run away. Jack Holly ran away. My God. This is your friend, uh, Christian, your friend Jack Holly ran away. He sat in the back to rabble rouse. He's happy that his students, uh, two, three guys, he hired them uh, and he ran away. So uh, I just wanted to confirm on the last question. I wanted to, I wanted to add a little bit to it. Um, the, the police, the police, the, yeah, the police initially thought that 
they were looking for a black man walking in the pedestrian on the on the uh, sidewalk. But once they saw the man, they knew he wasn't black. But her real issue was not that it was about India uh, okay. killing okay. Muslims okay. Uh, uh, and whatnot, whatnot. So, yeah, that's so, so, you know, basically, I'm against killing anybody. And if they are killing Muslims, they should be prosecuted. Of course, they should prosecute. If they're killing Dalits, they should be prosecuted. All I'm saying is if they are also against Hindus, that should also be the case. So, I'm not saying that to defend X, you have to accuse, uh, you have to damage Y. If there is Islamophobia, it's bad. If there's Dalit phobia, it's bad. But if Hindus are being kicked out of Kashmir, that is also bad. And if they're being kicked out of Bangladesh, that is also bad. <laughs> See, my... The, the, the strange thing is that the keepers of human rights and equality and all that cannot applaud a statement which calls for equality. They can only applaud a statement for inequality. <laughs> Thank you. So, so, you know, I'm for, just for the record, if somebody is being uh, prejudiced against, that should be condemned. And so that we should have conference on Islamophobia and one on Hinduphobia. When you have a, con for count the number of Islamophobia hits you will get in academic conferences and events and papers and dissertations, and then compare with Hinduphobia. I just want to equalize that. Any phobia, any xenophobia is bad. So we should, we should do that. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I can have the last word here. Thank you. I just wanted to thank Rajivji for such a candid discussion. Good. Today. Thank you so much. Good. All of you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions, please write to us on infinityfoundationpodcast at gmail.com. This is Karishma and I am saying bye-bye to you for now. See you next time.